Welcome to Day of Destiny with Dr. Michelle Corral, author, prophetic teacher, and pastor of Breath of the Spirit Prophetic Word Center. Dr. Corral can be seen weekly, nationwide, and around the world on her weekly telecasts that air on God TV, Impact, and Word Network. Now, let's join Dr. Corral by experiencing Day of Destiny, designed with your highest destiny in mind. Now, here is Dr. Corral. I want to tell you something that I believe will change your life. Did you know that Queen Esther is one of the most skilled strategists in military warfare in the entire Bible? Did you know that what is taught to us in the book of Esther concerning the scriptural strategies of spiritual warfare are not only relevant in the time of Esther, but they are also relevant right now in our own lives. You may ask the question, Lord God, I'm in a battle and I need a breakthrough. Please show me which weapons of war to use to be effective against the wicked one. Well, I've got a word for you today. I'm Dr. Michelle Corral, and I invite you to stay with us today for this very powerful, powerful teaching on the scriptural strategies of spiritual warfare in the book of Esther. But before we do that, beloved saints, I want to invite you to our website at mydayofdestiny.com. This is a website that has been designed just for Day of Destiny podcast. And did you know that as you go to that website, you can also order my latest book on secrets of the anointing. I'm so blessed to share this with you because for over 40 years, God has had this ministry of breath of the spirit feature teachings on the anointing, on your breakthrough, teachings on how to yield to the Holy Spirit, teachings on how to operate in the gifts of the spirit, how to know when the Holy Spirit is leading you and when he is stopping you, how to flow in the supernatural in a most excellent way. We learned much of this because, beloved saints, we go way back to the time even of Catherine Kuhlman. So I invite you not to miss out on your opportunity of owning your own personal copy of Secrets of the Anointing. And you can order it on my Day of Destiny website. Now, beloved, let's get started. But first, I want to say a prayer. I'm going to say a prayer for every one of you that are in a battle right now. Every one of you that are listening today, that God will bring the spirit of prophecy over your life, that you will be able to prophetically receive from the spirit of God, the strategy from the word and from the spirit, exactly how God wants you to maneuver warfare against the wicked one. Today, we are going to pray that the weapons of warfare in your life will be given to you clearly and concisely by the Holy Spirit through the word of God 
as we see Queen Esther as the most exquisite example of flowing in the anointing and being used of God prophetically and in every area of spiritual warfare. Actually, the way she handled Haman is really one of the most profound examples of the art of and skill of spiritual warfare. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, today in the name of Jesus, we release the skills, we release the anointing, we release the strategies and the plan. God, that you want to give every person in, the, in listening to this teaching today, every single individual that needs a plan. Father God, we release the plan in the name of Jesus. Father, they do not need to cry themselves to sleep. They do not need to be in anxiety and stress. God, I pray right now that you would release a plan after listening to this teaching, that this teaching would be drenched in destiny, drenched in the word of God, drenched in understanding on how to receive from the spirit of God his plan and his purpose and the anointing from the spirit, through the witness of the spirit, through the guiding of the Holy Spirit, through the quickening of the Holy Spirit, and through the word of God. These two supernatural entities working together. And Father, in Jesus' name, may every person listening today receive an anointing similar to Queen Esther when she brought down Haman. Father God, in the name of Jesus, if they're willing to pay the price, if they're willing to be sold out in everything they have, Father, we believe you are going to give them that same supernatural power in their particular situation that you gave to Queen Esther because you are the God of Queen Esther and you're also our God. In Jesus' mighty name, and we give you praise and we give you glory for Jesus' sake. And everyone said, amen. First of all, I want you to, I want to say, if you are going to listen to Michelle Corral, please do not see me. Do not just hear me. I'm asking you just to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. We're opening our Bibles today, beloved saints, to the book of Esther. And first and foremost, before we introduce to you the supernatural strategies and skills for spiritual warfare that we see laid out for us in a very strategic manner in the book of Esther, I want to first of all draw your attention as to who the antagonist is here. I want you to be able to fully comprehend the wickedness of Haman the Agagite. I want you to also see, beloved saints, that as actually Queen Esther has two types of royalty. She is by title the Queen of Persia, but she is by DNA, by destiny, and by election of God, the queen that God is raising up in the land to represent the people of Israel by taking the place of her great ancestor, King Saul. So if we were to actually ask the question, what royalty does Queen Esther actually represent? I want you to understand the scripture focuses on the fact that Queen Esther is the descendant, the royal descendant of King Saul. And her mission is actually one to finish what Saul forfeited. And that is to annihilate Amalek. I want you to understand when we say annihilating Amalek, you may not know 
um, that King Saul's primary responsibility as king of Israel was to destroy, quote unquote, Amalek, or as we say in Hebrew, Amalek. It is so important to understand this mission given to her by God, because why? Through Saul's disobedience, the descendant of the king of the Amalekites, Agag, actually appears in the book of Esther. And what is his greatest quest in life? We are going to see that Haman is not just a villain. I do not want you just to see Haman as a villain. He is the embodiment of a diabolical, wicked plan to destroy the Jews. Actually, if you were to ask me, Michelle Corral, who is Haman the Agagite? I would say he is the first out of Hitler. I would say that Esther foiled the plans of a national holocaust against the Jews. She brought it down. She absolutely destroyed the plan of Haman the Agagite. But I don't want you to see Haman just as some little villain that appears and see Queen Esther as if this is some melodrama where she is stretching out her hands and fluttering her eyelashes. That is the most far from the truth, reality, um, conception, misconception of reality that we can possibly conceive in our minds about Queen Esther. I want you to see she is a woman of valor. She is a woman of strength. She represents pure selflessness. She represents being clothed with royalty, being clothed with the exact anointing that her ancestor Saul was anointed with. And she is going to be anointed to bring down the first Adolf Hitler that was ever in this world. And that is Haman. So first of all, let us look at Haman the Agagite before we actually look at Queen Esther and all of the strategies of spiritual warfare that we see in the book of Esther that God wants you to apply to your life against whatever wicked spirits you are dealing with, whatever strongholds, principalities, and powers are trying to destroy you and trying to destroy your destiny, trying to take you out before your time in Jesus' name. Let's look at Esther chapter 3, verse 1 for context, beloved saints. Let's go to the book of Esther. The Bible says, after these things, did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Amadatta, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were before him? And the scripture tells us, now it came to pass, um, if we look in verse 4, there's going to be a definite um, a portion here in the text that shows us that Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman the Agagite. And we are going to see that in verse 7, because of this, Haman is not only going to seek to destroy Mordecai, but the people of Mordecai who are the Jews. And the scripture shows us in verse 7. And in the first month, in the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day, from month to month, until the month of Adar. Now, we are going to actually get a look at Haman's final solution. 
I bring this to you with the utmost respect. I bring this to you, dear people of God, with understanding the wickedness and the embodiment of pure evil in this person, Hamani Egagai. I want you to see the way he is going to present his plan of genocide against the Jewish people to King Ahasuerus. I want you to see that Ahasuerus, also known as King Ahasuerus, is actually going to buy into it, hook, line, and sinker. I want you to see that he's not just some villain appearing with some, uh, some idea, let us just destroy the Jews. I want you to see that what the scripture is actually going to show us is very similar to the final solution that was actually presented on January 20th, actually put together on January 20th, 1942, in the Von C River uh, estate, which is known as the Von C Villa. Now, before we do that, I wanna give you a little background on the final solution in case you do not know or are unfamiliar with the final solution that was actually put together in 90 minutes by 15 Nazi generals to fully exterminate the Jewish people across Europe. 11 million they had in mind, but they succeeded with destroying the lives of 6 million people. First of all, on January 20th, 1942, we have 15 high-ranking uh, Nazi officials who met on the Bansi River in the Bansi Villa Estate, uh, sipping cognac and also enjoying their pastries as they put together a plan to destroy the Jews. And I want you to see the euphemistic language that was used in the final solution. The final solution, of course, was a, was a plan that is a plan of gen programmatic genocide, not just genocide, but programmatic genocide, beginning with the arrest of Jews, first of all, with registration of all Jews throughout Europe, all Jews being made to wear a star to identify them, not only backed by the vials, the vile work of, of Nazi propaganda that actually spewed out one lie against another through the multi-uses um, multi of propaganda through Nazi experts um, in placing this evils of propaganda across Europe against the Jews. But then, of course, after the registration, after the Stars of David, then to start mass, mass arrests throughout Europe, arresting the Jews, and then, of course, deporting the Jews to the concentration camps. I want you to see that throughout the final solution, we have euphemistic language. Now, you may say, Dr. Crowell, why are you even bringing this up in the book of Esther? What in the world does euphemistic language in the final solution have to do with the book of Esther? It has everything to do with Haman's wicked plan that he's going to present to King Ahasuerus on the very day in the first month, in the month of Nisan, he's going to present this wicked plan to destroy the Jews. And of course, because he is, he operates 
similar to what we see centuries later as the person known as Adolf Hitler. We're going to see the same type of plan under the, the masquerade of euphemistic language. Let us see some of the euphemistic words that are used in the final solution as a masquerade and cover-up, such as the, ex the delivery of special treatment to Jews, which actually meant their execution, such as cyanide poisoning in their showers and other atrocities that we will not mention on this Facebook Live or on this podcast. We also see the assimilation, this use of assimilation that is used um, uh, across the, um, the uh, Europe, used as a format to, to explain what evils the Jews are doing, which is such a lie. But assimilation actually means in the final solution, this euphemistic phrase is really de-Judaization. And we are going to see that Haman uses this very same language. We also see terms like evacuation. We also see the terms in the final solution used like reduction, which means mass murders, and also treatment, which is actually another word for their mass executions. I want you to see this compared in context to Haman the Agagite, as he goes to King Ahasuerus in chapter 3. Let us look at this so that we can understand the exact opponent Queen Esther is up against. I, I want you to see that this opponent that she's up against is not just some fairy tale fantasy villain. I want you to understand that she is up against an, an Adolf Hitler. Looking at the scripture, the Bible shows us in verse 8, And Haman said to Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among thy people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from other people. Neither do they keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. Let's take a look at this euphemistic phrase. It is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. What are you actually saying, Haman the Agagite? What are you actually saying? It's not for the king's prophet. So are you actually proposing national genocide against the Jews? Uh, inter uh, actually international genocide, because this would include the extermination of Jews in all 127 provinces of King Ahasuerus. It's not in the king's profit to suffer them. Well, let's look at this Nazi ideology and see if we see it anywhere today in our modern society, because we have all been given, if we read the Bible, and if we are Bible-believing Christians, if you do not understand that the call that God gave to every one of us, if we believe in the Bible and we have claimed the Bible as the word of the living God, then we have also been given the call by God 
to destroy Amalek in our generation. And how do we do that? Through destroying the ideologies, through speaking the truth in love, through raising the awareness and uncovering the masquerade, uncovering the cover-up that uses euphemistic phrases to actually cover up the manufacturing of genocide. And we see it right here. We see that he is actually saying, um, is it's not in the king's profit to suffer them. So we dispose of a human being because we can't make money off of them. Now, continuing in the context, let us look and see in verse 9. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those that have charge over this business to bring it into the king's treasuries. Wait a minute. You are calling the manufacturing of genocide and those who have charge over this business? What business? Do you mean that those who are going to carry a weapon and those that are actually on the 13th day of the month of Adar, back in the days of Queen Esther, that you are actually going to pay the individuals to exterminate human beings? And the answer to that is yes. All right. So did that happen in the Third Reich? And we must understand every person that's on Hitler's payroll, every person who manufactured and contributed to the death of Jews was actually participating in this preface, if you will, that we see in God's word, that we see the Holocaust that could have been, that Queen Esther actually brought down through her bravery. All right, and through the anointing and through the skill and through the strategies, and through the power of the Word of God. Now, you may say, okay, Dr. Krause, we have a lot of uh, phrases that are used by Haman. We actually see the Nazi ideology written here in Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But can you actually say that King Ahasuerus and Haman are actually acting like Nazis? Did you know, beloved saints, that if you trace the swastika, and you trace the origins of the swastika, did you know that the origins of the swastika actually begin in the Achmed Empire back in the days of Queen Esther? There's actually evidence of this from a beautiful jeweled, actually pure gold necklace that has swastikas on it. And we see that the symbol of the swastika that was used back in the time of Ahasuerus and in the time of the Persian Empire was a swastika in the middle of the sun. So we need to see that there are definite ties much stronger than Haman's hate for the Jews. Now, we must understand that what did they do after this decree was signed? Okay, so you sign a decree to exterminate millions of lives. You sign a decree, you put together your final solution. You are now have ended this um, decree. It's going to be sent out. And what do you do after this? You do exactly what the Nazis did when they were listening to Bach and Beethoven while they were in their finely pressed suits, sitting back, crossing their legs, and sipping their cognac while they just signed a death order. And while they just signed a death order for all Jews, I want you to see the same reaction in King Ahasuerus. 
looking and seeing that he and Haman do the same thing. The Bible says in verse 15, the post went out being hastened by the king's commandment and the decree was given in Shushan the palace and the king and the city of Shushan sat down perplexed. But the Bible says, part B of verse 15, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. This goes to show us that the moral conscience of these individuals is actually at zero. There is no moral conscience. What happens, beloved people, when a people no longer have a moral conscience? You see, the Bible was written to raise our values. The Bible was written to cause us to develop a sensitive conscience. Do you know what Adolf Hitler said? Let me read to you, beloved people of God, one of the quotes of Adolf Hitler that's very important for us to recognize, we not only see these phrases, but we also and see this cover-up language, but we also see um, some language, dear people of God, that is used by Adolf Hitler um, that he says in one of his speeches. He says, um, he says, it is an honorable title. He says, we, it is true, we are barbarians. And it is an honorable title to be a barbarian. Excuse me? An honorable title to be a barbarian? Because a barbarian is someone who manufactures genocide. Then we see, I free humanity from the shackles of the soul. Quote from Adolf Hitler, I free the world from the vision of morality and conscience. He says, the Jews have inflicted two wounds on mankind, circumcision on the body, God help us, and the conscience on its soul. So you see, Hitler was not just opposed to the Jews as a nation. He was opposed to God. He wanted God destroyed. And I want you to know, he actually thought of himself in the place of God. He considered himself to be a God. And his objection and venomous hate toward God's people is because the Bible brought conscience and morality to the soul. Beloved saints, we as God's people must, in this hour that we're living in, develop this concept of a moral conscience. This is why the Bible is written so that we can defend the poor, so that we can be a voice for the voiceless. Do you know one of the greatest examples of a voice for the voiceless was Moses. Do you realize that Moses placed such value on those who don't have a voice that he actually gave up knowing fully well, not in a fit of anger, but with a decisive decision, I am going to make this decision. And this decision was when he saw a Hebrew being smitten by an Egyptian, the Bible tells us that he saved the Hebrew's life by slaying the Egyptian. 
And the Bible tells us at that moment that he knew exactly what he was doing. He was actually preserving and speaking out against, against someone uh, who was taking advantage on a constant basis, millions of people to dehumanize them, to traumatize them, to force cruelty upon them, to force labor upon them. And the Bible praises Moses' act in the book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter. And we read it in the 24th verse. Let me read it for you so you can understand what Moses did on the day that he made the decision to defend those who have no voice. Here we see in Hebrews chapter 11, beloved saints, and I just teaching you this so that you might be able to understand how important it is. For those who have no voice, God is looking for those to stand up for the voiceless or to take a stand for righteousness sake. Here we see in Hebrews chapter 11, beloved, here we see in verse 24, the Bible says, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto recompense for the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured seeing him who was invisible. So we see that when Moses was grown, he made this very same decision. When Moses went out, when he was of age to see his brethren, we understand that the Bible actually uses this word brethren twice in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2 so that we would see that he fully identified with his people. Now, beloved people, for us to understand the anointing on Queen Esther, how did she do this? How did she manage to bring down Haman the Agagite in three days? How did she actually uh, maneuver a plan that was so spiritually anointed and so skillfully prepared? First of all, let's look at Queen Esther, shown to us in the book of Esther, going now to Esther chapter 5. Let us look and let us see what the scripture is actually showing us about Queen Esther. Looking at Esther chapter 5, and we are going to begin in verse 1, and then we are going to move on to Esther's plan. Looking at Esther chapter 5 verse 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house. Beloved saints, as you know, the original Hebrew does not say that Esther put on royal apparel. It actually says Esther put on royalty. So the question arises, what royalty did she actually put on? The, the concept of royal apparel is something for us to easily grasp in the Western world. But the concept to put on royalty is something that actually is not something easy for us to understand. We might understand what is the Bible telling us in the original language when it says Esther put on royalty. First of all, from a literal sense of scripture, to put on royalty actually means that she's putting on the mantle of King Saul. She's putting on the royalty that she is going to replace. Remember, Esther's real royalty is her royalty in her DNA 
as the descendant of King Saul. And the Megillah Esther, the scroll of Esther, actually begins with the fact that the Bible is teaching us that Saul is deleted from destiny. This is the statement that is indirectly made that we see here in Esther chapter 2, verse 5. When the genealogy of Mordecai is given, now in Shishan the palace there was a certain Jew named Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shmi, the son of Kish. We actually should have Saul's name because Saul's name should be inserted in this genealogy because he was the son of Kish. But the Bible deliberately deletes Saul's name from this actual genealogy showing destiny because Saul forfeited his destiny when he lost the, um, the Maluka, he lost the kingship when he disobeyed Samuel for the second time and refused to completely, utterly annihilate Amalek. This is a commandment that God gave to Israel upon entering the promised land. God said to, um, to Joshua, God commanded Moses, and this is a commandment given to the Joshua generation that was going to enter the land of Israel. Remember, the book of Deuteronomy was written in the 40th year. So this means that Moses is addressing all of those who have already died in the wilderness and the new generation under Joshua that is going to go in and possess the land of promise. And a very important commandment is given to Israel concerning Israel being able to reach its highest stratosphere of success. And that is through the annihilation of Amalek. But as long as Amalek exists, Israel could not get to its highest dimension of destiny because Amalek is not just a physical enemy. Amalek is a spiritual enemy, an ideology that must be destroyed in every generation. This is why when Amalek originally attacked Israel, when Israel came up out of the Red Sea, in the environs of the Red Sea, the Bible tells us that at the end of Exodus chapter 17, the Bible says, thus the Lord has sworn that he will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So how is it after generations that uh, Amalekites are actually an extinct people? How can it be that God is actually having a war with Amalek from generation to generation? And that is through the ideologies, through bringing them down, through standing for righteousness, through being able to exterminate in our hearts, through our lives, through our prayer, through our fasting, the non-biblical value system that's being glorified in this world. So here we see, dear people of God, that we see that God gave Israel a command, and this is what the Lord said in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. The Bible says, thus says the Lord, I remember and God actually gives the command. The actual verse starts out with, remember what Amalek did to you when you were by the way, when you came forth from the land of Egypt, how he smote the hindmost of you, when you were weak and feeble, for he feared not God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest in the land, round about and given you rest from your enemies, that you shall utterly destroy Amalek and you shall not forget it. So we see that this is a commandment 
um, twice God is using this word zakor. At the beginning, remember, and at the end, you shall not forget it, zakor again. So we must understand that God is giving a strong commandment to Israel that Amalek must be destroyed. And we see that uh, Saul absolutely disobeyed and the actual last words that Samuel the prophet ever said to Saul was the Lord has rent the kingdom out of your hands and he has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. I want you to understand these words better than you are also used in the book of Esther, only it's just changed by one word. Uh, let her royal estate, speaking of Queen Vashti, be given to another who is better than she. So we see these um, components shown to us in Esther chapter 1 verse 19, corresponding with the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15, when the prophet Samuel says, your kingdom has been rent from you and given to your neighbor who is better than you. All right. So now we see Esther puts on royalty and we see that this royalty is actually related to King Saul. She is going to receive the same anointing that King Saul received to destroy Amalek, which he forfeited. She is going to be anointed. And how do we know? Do we actually see an anointing ceremony? We don't see Esther having oil poured upon her the same way that Samuel poured the vial of oil in 1 Samuel chapter 10 upon Saul. So what's going on here? Why does the Bible say that Esther put on royalty? Because we must see in the book of Esther that Mordecai is going to tell us as he writes this book of Esther along with Mordecai, I mean, along with Queen Esther. In Esther chapter 2 verse 12, we see the very same words that are used, the very same ingredients that are used in the anointing oil in Exodus chapter 30 are used uh, uh, in this uh, verse 12 to show us that Esther was in oils for 12 months. Let's look at the text. The Bible says, now when every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, after she had been 12 months, according to the manner of women, so were the days of their purifications accomplished, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and other things for the purifying of women. Beloved saints, I want you to see that the six months of oil of myrrh corresponds with the primary principal spice of myrrh that is given in Exodus chapter 30, verse 23 for the anointing oil used for kings. And then we also see six months in sweet spices. We also see that in Exodus chapter 30, verse 23 and 24, the sweet spices are articulated in the verses that correspond exactly with the spices that were used for Esther. He's using the actual um, anointing of Esther with the oils for cosmetic purposes in the house of the women. But he actually means for every person to be instructed because all Bible, all every word in the Bible is personal, powerful, prophetic, and relevant. And it is also 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches us all scripture is inspired of God and it is profitable for a doctrine, reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. So we are being instructed in this verse that Queen Esther was anointed as she put on royalty. 
Now, let us look at Esther's plan. Esther's plan is very defined and very articulate. Notice she gets this power through her prayer and through her fasting. She also receives the power to destroy the enemy through laying her life down unto the death. Esther is a prophetic prefiguring of the church triumphant. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation in the 12th chapter and the 11th verse, the Bible says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and that they loved not their lives unto the death. So let us look at the plan that Queen Esther is going to present and notice that this plan is so effective and so powerful. Number one, because she put on the anointing. The anointing is given for her appointing. Secondly, we are going to see that she was willing to lay her life down unto the death. This is the most powerful weapon of war against the enemy. If you are not planning on laying your life down unto the death, then my dear friend, do not plan on winning the war. By that I mean, if you are in a battle, you have to be willing to, to renounce your will, to do God's will. You see, God wants you to be able to be so committed to what he has called you to do that you're willing to lay your life down for it. This is why Esther says, avodity, avodity. If I perish, I perish. What does that mean? It's not just saying, well, if I perish, I perish. That is not what this means. She is literally saying, avad, which means my life, my life. Avadity, avadity. My life, my life. Translating the concept of life in the New Testament is actually translated in, uh, in some of the Hebrew scripture and some of the scriptures. We see this word life, actually the word suke, which means soul. And we actually see that Esther is willing to die in two areas. She's not only willing to give up her biological life to do the will of God, she also is willing to give up everything that means anything to her. She's willing to give up the title as queen of Persia. She's willing to be at risk in the eyes of Ahasuerus. And at this point, she has detached herself from all feelings toward Ahasuerus so she can do the will of God. And this man is the man who actually signed the death decree against her people. So she must be very careful how she's going to approach this petition that she's going to request from him because she is representing God's people. She has fully taken the responsibility upon her shoulders to be the one that is going to lay her life down so that others will live. All right. So now let us see, we've established two supernatural strategies. Number one, she's putting on the anointing. Number two, and we see that that anointing is for the appointing. Number two, we are going to see that the diadem of destiny is given unto her because she is faithful unto death. Now, thirdly, let us look at Esther's plan. We are going to see that this plan is actually skillfully put together. And I want you to see, dear people of God, that there was a document written several thousands of years ago. It is a book called The Art of War. And when we see this document, The Art of War, we actually see that Esther's strategies and skills could actually be compared. Actually, they were before The Art of War was ever written. So we can actually see that Esther actually had these skills in her before this book, The Art of War, was actually written. The reason I'm bringing The Art of War up 
is that today the art of war is used. It was written thousands of years ago, but it's actually used in military institutions around the world. And we see that many of the skills and strategies for war that are in this book, The Art of War, were used and appropriated by Esther long before this book was ever written. So one of the ultimate goals in the art of war is to deliver victory without fighting. I want you to see that Esther was able to bring down Haman without ever raising a hand against him. Secondly, we're going to see that in the art of war, the very most important strategy of war is to know your enemy. And this is something that we must understand that Esther employs as one of her weapons of war. She knows her enemy well. She knows Haman, and she also knows King Ahasuerus. And we are going to see she knows them not only from living in the palace and knowing the wicked ways of Haman the Agagite, but she is also given insight through the Holy Spirit. She is given the spirit of prophecy. And I want you to understand that the spirit of prophecy is not limited just to thus saith the Lord. The spirit of prophecy also operates through being able to have perception, word of knowledge, word of wisdom. These are operations in the anointing of prophecy. And we see that Esther is fully operating in wisdom that could not be given to her on her own. She is actually given insight into the psychology of Haman and into the psychology of Ahasuerus because she proposes her plan according to what the Holy Spirit has shown her, how they think and how they are going um, what is going to actually cause Ahasuerus to turn on Haman. I want you to understand she is going to use the skill in spiritual warfare. She's going to take the strength of her enemy and she's going to use it to maneuver the strength of her enemy toward her opponent. And so we're going to see that she's actually going to use the enemy's strength against himself. And she's going to maneuver and set up suspicion with King Ahasuerus toward Haman the Agagite. And she does it so beautifully. She does it through A, not just bringing the plan immediately. She prepares a plan. She doesn't present her petition at first. She prepares the banquet. And the Holy Spirit, divine providence, also assists her in this through the king not being able to sleep through divine providence, a series of events take place. And we see that the plan is actually put in its highest pinnacle of perfection through uh, divine providence and through Esther's plan. Secondly, we see on the second night of the banquet, she presents her plan and her petition according to what the Holy Spirit has shown her. And through this, she is able to bring down Haman the Agagite in three days. Beloved people, I believe that as we further study Esther's plan, that God is going to give you the spiritual strategies for your victory. So I invite you to stay with us for installment number two on Esther's plan and the strategies of spiritual warfare. 
coming up in our next installment. Beloved friends, today, if you have received an anointing from the Holy Spirit and you are being mantled for the miraculous, I invite you to sow seed into this ministry. You can do that by going to our website at breathofthespirit.org. That's breathofthespirit.org. And you can actually sow seed tonight for our worldwide Hesed programs, helping the poor around the world, daily feeding programs for children in mountainous areas in the Philippines, for daily hot meals being served in Uganda to orphans, for a complete orphan program, for education, for food, for clothing, in Nadu, Tamil, India. Also, in other parts of India, through our wonderful pastor that we have representing us, going to villages and through Operation Hunger that we have just established recently this year. We also have programs in Pakistan and, of course, our orphanage in Egypt and our Syrian refugee work that we are working with uh, with Syrian refugees, not only in Syria, but also that uh, are happening through our programs in Egypt. Beloved saints, I invite you, invest today in this wonderful Hesed. And you can do that by going to our website, breathofthespirit.org, or also by those of you who want to text to give, you can do that by texting the number 77977 and text it to Hesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. And our announcer is going to tell you further how you can give to our program. We love you, God bless you, and we will see you very soon. Thank you for joining us today on Day of Destiny. We invite you to our website at mydayofdestiny.com where you can easily access other podcasts and obtain your copy of Dr. Corral's latest book, Secrets of the Anointing. Also, we want to take this moment to invite you to engage in extending your hand of kindness by planting your seed or offering for multitudes that include orphans, providing water wells, providing medical supplies, clinics, feeding programs, and many other services to the suffering church and through efforts of evangelism worldwide. Just go to our website and click the donate button or text to give. Text HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. That's HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. You are also invited to visit Dr. Michelle Corral Facebook or Instagram. We look forward to having you encounter the anointing with us on our next Day of Destiny podcast. 